Where are Cameron and Jenny? Right there. Are you guys with us next Sunday? Okay, so this isn't their last Sunday. We've got them for one more week, but last Sunday, Cameron will be leading worship, and thank you for how you've led us already this morning. Um, I've, been, I've been deeply affected by these songs and the way we sing together. What a, what a gift. Please turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Greg shared this quote last week as we launched this brief five-week sermon series through what we're calling Summer Psalms. He shared this quote from Sam Storms. It's been said that no one struggles to find the Psalms relevant. And rarely will you hear someone say after reading the Psalter, I just can't identify with this. It doesn't speak to me where I'm at in life right now. Whereas most scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. In the Psalms, we find inspired examples of what we can and should and must say to God. They are a perpetual reminder that God welcomes our deepest desires, our most unnerving of fears, our anxiety and adoration, our celebration, and our confusion. So, as Greg explained last week, over five weeks here we've handpicked five psalms that have in particular been meaningful to us personally in our own fight of faith. And we were guided by a desire to pick from a variety of genres. Within the psalms we find thanksgiving psalms and there are royal psalms and there are hymns of praise and there are laments. And by far, it's not even close, the largest category of psalms is the lament. There are 150 psalms, and 58 of them at least could be classified as laments. That's over a third of them, 58 out of 150. And so Psalm 88 this morning is a lament. So what exactly is a lament? The simplest definition I can give you is this. A lament is Godward grief. Godward grief. It's grief expressed to God. That's a lament. It's praying to God with all of our raw emotion and confusion and pain and sorrow, prayers that are likely punctuated by sobs and groans, oftentimes accompanied by body language. As the psalmist says, I lay in the dust, I stretch out my hands before you, I tear my clothes, I dump ashes over myself. Lament is Godward grief. And we see that right away in Psalm 88. If you're looking at it in the text in front of you, Verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, I cry out day and night before you. So this is not just grief shouted at the empty sky. This is to you. Oh God, let my prayer come before you, God of my salvation. And then again in verse 9b, the psalmist says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. In verse 13, again, But I, O Lord, call to you. So that's a lament. It's crying out. 
The, the Hebrew word here for cry is, is a scream for help. That's the defining factor in a lament, is the audience of our grief. It's Godward grief. But th- there are two ways I think we're often tempted to mishandle grief and miss the opportunity that we have when we're experiencing pain to lament. We so need a, a theology of lament. We often miss this. We, we miss it either intentionally or unintentionally. We may miss it intentionally because we just think, I shouldn't take all of that kind of emotion that I'm feeling to God. I should come to him with a much more polished, oh God, I just trust you and everything's going to be fine. Not this agony of emotion that I'm actually feeling. Or we may intentionally avoid talking to God about it because we just don't really trust him and we're tempted to think hard thoughts about him in our pain. Andrew Wilson in his book, The Life We Never Expected, says this, in my culture, we weep in private as a family. We reflect on happy times. We put a good face on things. We have measured discussions with funeral directors. We tell our friends that we're going to be okay. And then we go about arranging what we call this, this euphemism, this celebration service, which must under no circumstances give the impression that anybody is actually sad about anything. Instead of letting the emotions out, we hold it in, we push it down, and we often find months or even years later that we haven't really dealt with it. The other way we mishandle our pain, maybe more unintentional, but we we just vent to people or to other places than to God. Again, Andrew Wilson says this, lament forces us to take our pain to God. First and foremost, before we take it to other people, lament, you see, is about bringing your sorrows to God in painful description, petition, confusion, throwing your doubts and your questions at Him, rushing to dump them on friends or on family or on Facebook without having gone to God with them first is not lamenting but venting. And in the long run, it does not do nearly so much good. With the best will in the world, people are not big enough to absorb your grief. Only God is. So that's what the the laments in the Psalms are all about. Encouraging us, go to God with all that you feel when life is hard. Bear your soul to God He can take it. That's what the laments are for. So before we dig into Psalm 88, I just want to explain why I chose this one out of the 58. There are a lot to choose from. I once heard someone say that the length of a psalm, maybe you've noticed some of them are really short and some of them are really long. Someone once said, the length of a psalm is determined by how long it takes the psalmist to break through to joy. And that seems to fit most of the pattern. I I could show you 57 examples. I'll just give you one from Psalm 6. It begins with this grievous lament. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord... 
And then the psalmist can't even finish the sentence. It just becomes, how long? But if we read on, in Psalm 6, it only takes 10 verses. By verses 9 and 10, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And that's the pattern for 57 psalms. But Psalm 88 blatantly breaks that pattern. Psalm 88 is the bleakest, darkest lament in all of Scripture. It's 18 verses, and it doesn't end with joy. In fact, literally, it ends with the word darkness in English and in Hebrew. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And it's over. So if we're going to look at a lament, we might as well tackle the darkest one. If there's any hope for those who grieve and those who suffer and those who feel pain and confusion and the hard things in life, we might as well be equipped with the strongest vaccination. Does God have something for me here? Is there grace for me in Psalm 88? Because if there is, and that equips me for the darkest times, then the times when I do break through to joy by God's grace will seem all the better. So the second reason I chose Psalm 88 is because it provides a template for lamenting in any kind of suffering. Some of the psalms, some of the laments are, were written in particular circumstances. For example, Psalm 7 says that David sang this to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. We don't know who that is. We don't know what happened. We just know as we read through the psalm that evidently Cush, the Benjamite, said some nasty things about David, and he was deeply troubled by it. He was facing false accusations, and it caused him pain and suffering. And so if you're going through a trial in life when people have said nasty things about you, Psalm 7 may be especially helpful to you. Psalm 59, David wrote when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So if you ever look outside your window and you see people sitting in a car, and you think they're staking you out to kill you, Grab Psalm 59. But Psalm 88 doesn't tell us what the circumstance was. It just tells us in general terms things like, my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. A lot of people can relate to that feeling. It tells us that the psalmist feels alone in his suffering, shunned by his closest friends, abandoned by God. A lot of people can relate to those feelings. So this could be anything. This could be physical sickness, disease, chronic pain. It could be depression, tragedy, loss, you name it. Psalm 88 gives us all words to say to God in the darkest days. And so this psalm is a gracious gift. It was inspired by the Spirit of God for the people of God. It was sung in worship to God by God's covenant people. So my prayer this morning, it, it may be that for you, at this very moment, you feel like you are at the brink, going over the edge of a waterfall. And Psalm 88, by God's grace, may at this moment appear to you 
just in the nick of time, like a lifeline for you to grab onto. Or you may not be experiencing any trouble at all in life right now. And so I would urge you, like when you're sitting on an airplane and they get up to do that safety announcement thing and we all just tune it out, think of Psalm 88 like the safety instructions in the seat back in front of you. And don't ignore it now. Because when there's trouble, you will want to know how to use Psalm 88 to lament and to bear your soul before God. Tim Keller says this, no amount of money, power, planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Life is tragic. And, and I feel overwhelmed by that sense, even as I just look out at, at who's here and I think of the pains that have been experienced in this congregation. If, if you haven't been here long and you don't know me, you should know up front, um, Four years ago, I had twin sons born with a, a severe medical condition, living on ventilators and feeding tubes. And a year ago, our son Isaac passed away at the age of three. And Caleb's life hangs in the balance. When Keller says life is fragile, fatally fragile, that's very real to me. And, and so I come to Psalm 88 personally out of desperation. Is there some hope for me here? Is there some grace? Is there a word from God for us here? Let's go to Psalm 88. Oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath, it lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? 
Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, oh Lord, I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. Oh Lord, why? Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Oh God, do you have a word for those who feel like they are in the deepest pit. Would you speak that word to us this morning? For those who at this moment feel like they are in that pit, would you, through your spirit, bring the grace of Psalm 88 to bear on their hearts? And for those who at this moment are free of any apparent trial or tribulation, would you cause this word to be stored in their memory so that when life is hard, they would know how to lament, how to bring their grief to you. We bring all our grief to you. Amen. So I think the structure of Psalm 88 is divided into three parts. The three parts introduced where the psalmist says, I cry to you. He says that three times, verse 1, verse 9b, verse 13. I think that gives us three sections, three petitions. So let's look at that first one, where the psalmist cries out, I feel like I've been buried alive. He begins by directing his prayer to Yahweh. We, we, in our Bibles, it's translated Lord, all capitals. That, that means in the Hebrew, he's using the covenant name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses, the I am, which means there is a glimpse of hope here. The psalmist is appealing to this covenant-keeping, promise-making God, Yahweh. And he addresses him as God of my salvation. So that's how he addresses God, and he begs God to hear him, and then he just elaborates and tells God exactly how he feels. Laments give the people of God permission to tell God how we feel. That's all he does in this first petition. He just says, this is how I feel, and he does it with brilliant poetry. And poetry is it's so beautiful and it's so deep and it's so complex and it's meant to stir our hearts to feel what the author's feeling. 
His poetry is marked with a dark theme. This author uses 10 different Hebrew words or phrases to say death or the dead. Here they are real fast. Sheol, which means the grave. The pit, the dead, the grave, different word. The depths, that is the lowest of pits. The regions dark and deep, the departed. Abaddon, darkness, land of forgetfulness. I told you this is the darkest lament. It's impossible to miss his theme. And then using all those words, he tells us how he feels. He feels exhausted and fatigued like he's wasting away, according to verse 4. There is no vitality in him. No energy, even to do the everyday stuff of life. According to verse 5, he feels like he's just a nameless, unknown soldier, slain in battle and heaved into a mass grave. He says, I've been dealt this mortal blow, and I'm just left forgotten and full of shame in this mass grave. He says he feels lonely. He feels isolated because he has been rejected by people he thought were friends, but now that he's suffering, it's too much for them, and so he feels like he's a horror to them. He feels claustrophobic, like the walls are pressing in around him. He says in verses 8 and verse 17, I'm shut in so that I can't escape. Your dreadful assaults surround me. They close in on me. He describes the feeling of drowning underwater. We can at least imagine how horrifying that feeling is. He says he feels like it's been this way his whole life, verse 15, from my youth up. Bad things always happen to me. When there's joy and there's happiness and there's prosperity, it's always somebody else. Everyone else's picture perfect posts on social media just mock me. Everyone else is succeeding. Everyone else is happy. Everyone else is rocking at life. But me, it's just, it's just been this way my whole life. And worst of all, he feels like God has abandoned him. God has turned his back, cut him off, he says this in verse 5, in verse 14, in verse 7, he says he feels like God is punishing him. And in desperation, he says in verse 15, and, and I'm defenseless. What, what can I do to stop any of it? I, I would sum up all of that. In short, he feels like life is just a living hell. I, I think... The cumulative effect of his poetic language is, I've been buried alive. I mean, just imagine waking up in a sealed coffin under six feet of cold, hard dirt in the middle of nowhere. 
And you know that no matter how hard you pound and how loud you cry, no one hears you down there. I mean, that's an uncomfortable feeling for me even to put into words. But it ties together all of the emotion packed into Psalm 88. I'm not even sure that God can hear me here. It's important I want to make a quick note about poetry and about feelings. The psalmist is describing his suffering from his perspective. And so he's free with his words to speak honestly about exactly how he feels. We call this phenomenological language. It means from my perspective, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm feeling It may not be reality, I get that, but it is how I feel. And so it's crucial to note that feelings can be real even if they're not true. That's essential. I really, really do feel this pain. That's real. I really, really do feel like God is nowhere to be seen. That doesn't mean He isn't. I know it's not true, But it is really how I feel. We have to, if we're going to manage our emotions with the wisdom of lament, understand that we can both acknowledge how we really feel while acknowledging those feelings don't define reality. A great example happened the other day when it was rainy outside and my wife Barbara said to our son Caleb, Caleb, the, the sun's not shining today. And then she thought for a moment and said, Well, it is, but we don't see it. That's how the psalmist feels. The sun's not shining. It doesn't mean it's not. It just means I don't see the sun shining. That's the first petition. This is how I really feel. Then we get to the second petition, 9b through 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? The psalmist has poured out his raw emotions in words and poetry and song before God. Then he reasserts, God, I'm I'm still crying out to you with urgency and frequency. Every day I'm calling out. I haven't stopped calling out to you. And now his petition takes the form of four parallel questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Question after question after question after question. Because if you've ever been there, you know sometimes that's all you have. I just have questions. But in these questions, we begin to glimpse just the faintest glimmer of hope in this darkest of all laments. This section reveals in a surprising way the object of this lamenter's longing and desire. This is a distraught Weep until you dry heave soul. 
But the barrage of questions here express the deepest fear. What if this feeling, what if this is permanent? What if it's not just a feeling? What if I really was in hell? What if I really was cut off from the glory of God? What if there really was no more hope for me? That would be the worst misery imaginable. You see, whatever pain, whatever loss, whatever sickness, whatever misery or grief or sorrow is causing my current distress, the one thought that I find truly unbearable is the thought that I would be cut off from the glory of God forever. And so these questions, it's it's not a, a bold declaration of hope like we saw last week in Psalm 63. Oh God, you're my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul faints for you. I'm just full of desire for you. It's just a mustard seed of faith in the form of questions that tell us what the psalmist fears losing the most is God. Whatever you treasure most is the thing you fear losing the most. If you treasure money most, then the loss of money would be the most unbearable thought to you. If you treasure your reputation most, then the loss of your reputation would be the most unbearable thought to you. If it's your house, if it's your kids, if it's your car, whatever it is, It's your health. I just can't bear the thought of being paralyzed and in a wheelchair. Whatever you fear losing the most tells you what you treasure the most. And the psalmist is saying through these questions, I don't want to lose you. I want to be among those who praise you, God. I want you to work wonders for me. I just feel like it's never going to happen. At this moment, I don't feel fullness of joy. I feel fullness of trouble. In fact, that word fullness of trouble, the beginning of Psalm 88, is the same word for fullness of joy that's used in Psalm 63 that we saw last week. God, you're my object of desire. And in these questions, I think the psalmist is also making his argument. That God, this is the reason I'm asking you to help me. It's not because there's something in me that deserves it. It's not because I think somehow there's something about me that would cause pity in you. God, don't you want worshipers? Don't don't living people worship you? Don't dead corpses just lie in the grave? God, if you want worshipers and the dead people don't worship you, then keep me alive, please, For the sake of your praise, for the sake of your glory. And so Psalm 88 teaches us that when we lament and make our appeal to God, we should stake our appeal on God's passion for his own glory. God will have worshipers, and that is the source of our hope. God, just keep me worshiping you. 
benefit would it be to you if I didn't worship you? God, do this for your glory. For your glory. So we come to the third petition. Verses 13 through 18. Where the psalmist once more affirms, I'm still seeking you, God. Every morning, I'm still crying out. I haven't stopped crying out to you. But now he turns to the question. The question that everybody who's ever suffered wrestles with. Why? I just want to know why. What's it for? What caused it? Whose fault was it? What, what good could possibly come from this? Why? Notice his worldview in the way that he's prayed all throughout. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Verse 14, oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. In short, the, the psalmist is saying, you have done this. You have done this. Your hand is heavy upon me. And we should not take that to be the psalmist sinfully blaming God for doing wrong to him. Rather, this conviction that behind it all ultimately is the providence of God, that is the very motivation that drives the psalmist to turn to God with all of his grief. As John Calvin said in his commentary on this psalm, nor indeed will any man sincerely betake himself to God to seek relief without a previous persuasion that it is the divine hand which smites him and that nothing happens by chance. That's the reason that the penman keeps coming back to God with all of his grief. It's the logic that Hosea expresses in Hosea 6, 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. He has done this, and that's why we're seeking him, because he's the only one who can relieve this. And yet, I know that for many who suffered, the thought, God did this, is the thought that causes them to think the hardest thoughts about God. If God is the one who did this, then why should I turn to him? Why should I trust him? And I feel so inadequate to answer that. But here's what's helped me. I imagine the alternative. Imagine God had nothing to do with my suffering. Imagine that all evil and all pain and all tragedy was entirely outside of his ability to do anything about it. That's horrifying. At any moment, 
tragedy could strike me that God did not see coming or God did not want to happen and he just couldn't quite do enough to stop it. That's distressing. That leaves me feeling hopeless. So some Christians may ask, well, shouldn't we rather say then that God allows this, but he doesn't, he doesn't plan it. He just allows it. And I, I get the desire to say that because it seems to get God off the hook a little bit, but I don't think it, it helps. When we say that God allows, what do we mean? Do we mean that God allows in the way that a goalkeeper allows a goal? Like, there he goes, diving to try and stop it, but sometimes the opponent is just too good. Sometimes the shot is just too well placed. And so the goalie allows a goal. No! Our God is not desperately diving to stop it and saying, sorry, sometimes I just let a few in. The only alternative is that when he allows, he allows because he has a reason. He has a purpose. So he allows on purpose. A purpose consistent with his character, which is wise and good. So let me just share with you three things that have been comforting to me when I think about this agonizing question. The Bible doesn't give us specific answers for every specific suffering that happens. But I think it does give us profound resources that comfort us, even while we really do still feel this intense pain. Three resources only Christianity offers that comfort. The first one is more philosophical, but it's been helpful to me. It's simply this. David Hume, the philosopher, he famously stated the problem of evil like this. Is God willing to prevent evil? but not able, then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence evil? So the way he frames it, there are two options. God wants to stop it, but he can't because he's weak. God doesn't want to stop it because he's bad. And the response to that, just intellectually, that's been helpful to me is there's actually a third option. It could be that God has reasons for not stopping it, which I don't understand. And when I start to think about how limited I am in my understanding, it's not very hard for me to admit, if God does have a reason, why would I think that I could possibly figure it out? I mean, I don't understand the most advanced math and physics and engineering, and chemistry. I struggle with that stuff that other humans smarter than I can figure out. Why would I think that I could figure out the complexities of governing the world according to God's ultimate purposes? Alvin Plantinga gave a simple illustration. He said, if you stick your head in a little tent and you're looking for a St. Bernard, your dog, and you don't see a St. Bernard in your little tent, it's safe to assume your dog's not in the tent. But if you stick your head in the tent and you're looking for those little no see biting flies and you don't see any, can you conclude that there aren't any? Well, no, because you wouldn't expect to see them anyway. 
There could be some in there. So just because I can't think of the reason doesn't mean there isn't one. That's helped me. But I realize that that's intellectual. And for some people, they can say, fine, I, fine. Maybe he has a reason. I still feel this pain. So there's a second resource that's been helpful to me, and it's more theological. I, I know what a comfort it can be to talk to someone else who has gone through something similar to me. This last April, I met a, a man whose four-year-old son was hit by a driver on the sidewalk outside their house. The driver was never caught, hit and run. Four-year-old son is dead. And I thought, oh my gosh, somebody else who's lost a child of that same age. And we had lunch together and we talked. And this happened 10 years ago for him, one year ago for me. And I just said, what's it like 10 years down the road? That helps me. And when I turn to scripture, I see a God who has suffered too. That's amazing. A God who sacrificed his son for me. And he suffered unimaginably more than I have. And the closer somebody is to you that you lose, the more it hurts. He lost his son, the fullness of his glory, whom he had enjoyed for all eternity, and he crushed his son for me. He suffered. And at this point, there's some overlap between the previous point that there could be a reason. There could be a reason. You see, why doesn't God just end evil with a snap of his fingers? Do you realize that to do so would mean that God would instantly end us? Because evil's not a force out there. Evil is in our hearts. So if God was going to end evil like that, it would mean we would all be done right now. And what we see in the death of Jesus is that God does do something to conquer evil without destroying us. And the only way for that to happen was for him to suffer the loss of his son. He was willing to do that which tells me whatever his purpose is, it's so awesome to him that he was willing to endure that pain in order to save me and not end me, but end evil by putting it all on his son and crushing him instead of me. That comforts me. That gives me some hope. And then I read Psalm 88 and I realize this is Jesus. This isn't poetry. This is reality for him. Jesus doesn't say, I feel like I'm dying. He dies. He doesn't say, I feel like your wrath is on me. Your wrath is on me. Jesus comes to these questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? And the answer is yes. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Yes, they do in Jesus. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Yes, he went there and he declared the steadfast love of God for everyone who suffers. Yes, in Jesus, yes. And so there's hope for my suffering soul. Edward Shalito said it like this in his poem, Jesus of the Scars. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, 
Only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. And the last resource that Christianity offers to those who suffer is more eschatological. That is, it's future-oriented. Second Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You ever watch one of those movies that you get to the end and you go, oh my goodness, I need to watch that again. I missed everything. I didn't understand any of it. Those are some of my favorite movies, the, the kind you have to watch twice because the first time through, without knowing the end, some of the early stuff just won't make sense. And the end sheds light on the early stuff. But by that time you go, I, I just need to go back and start over and watch it again. Those are my favorite. I think that's the kind of story we find ourselves in right now. The kind where most of it doesn't make sense right now. But there is an end coming that will make such glorious sense of it that God will bring joy out of the deepest pains we feel now. The denouement is what it's called in literature. The tying together of all the loose strands, the resolution of all of it, and the denouement is coming. We see a hint of it in Jesus, but that day has not yet come when God finally and fully, once and for all, establishes his kingdom here and raises the dead like my son Isaac. And so if at this point of the story you're going, I don't get it. I don't get it. The author would say to you, just wait. Just wait. Hang with it. Sometimes the story is almost unbearable. But the denouement is coming. Tim Keller says, the biblical view of things in resurrection is resurrection. Not a future that's just some consolation. Sorry for all the trouble. Here you go. But a restoration of the life you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but it will in some way that we don't see now. Make that final glory and joy even greater. And there's no way to get to that greater joy without going through this pain. That's the hope of the believer. So St. Augustine remarked when he thought about the fall of Adam, he said, oh, happy fall. Oh, happy fall that gained for us so great, so glorious a redeemer. So use Psalm 88 to give you words to go to God with your grief. That's what it's for. And be assured because of Psalm 88 that he can bear it. He can take it. He can take your honesty about your emotion. He can take your questions. And be assured that even if joy doesn't break through in your heart at that moment, your faith can still be real. Don't stop calling out to him. Let's pray.
Oh God. How long? How long, O oh Lord? Will you forgive me forever? We bring our griefs to you because you alone can do something about them. We bring our griefs to you because you are not indifferent to our suffering. You entered into it in order to save us out of it without destroying us. We bring our griefs to you because through Jesus we have assurance that you will make all things new and you will raise the dead. And so we bring our griefs to you knowing that when we suffer in Christ, when we're clinging to Christ and yet we suffer, we know it's not your wrath upon us. Jesus took all that. So there is absolutely nothing that could separate us from your love. Oh God, would you come quickly to keep your promise to help us feel the joy that your spirit brings. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.